0: Hey everybody! Our Board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you Rock, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs, free to residents. ROC empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to ROC content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aos.org. Hello everybody and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Wendell Cole. Myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are doing this OITE slash our board review series. Now please do us a favor. If you have been listening to us for a while and have learned something, please go and leave us a review in iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher. However you listen to us, we are trying to reach 200 reviews by the end of the year and I think we can do it. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, what are some techniques used when cementing a femoral stem? I think I've I have had, I've had I've cemented a couple during residency and we always use some of these different techniques and especially when you read about it. But what are some of the techniques that that are used for cementing these stems? Yeah, and
1: uh, this is something that I think is not as commonly taught because press fit is much more common, but in oncology, I cement a bunch of stuff, and so um, it's good to know how to cement properly so that you do decrease the chance of um, uh, fatty emboli and uh, complications with anesthesia and all that stuff when you are doing these sort of procedures. And so um, you wanna use pulsatile lavage. You want to really clean out the uh, femoral canal because the more kind of native fluid and fat and marrow contents that are in the stem or in the shaft while you're placing the cement well, all of that stuff has to go somewhere, and that's going to be the first stuff that leaves through the, uh, through the bone and goes into the bloodstream and goes up to the lungs. So if you can have a nice, dry, clean surface as you pressurize the femoral uh, shaft, you're going to have a decreased chance for uh, like pulmonary embolism and massive complications. So make sure it's clean. Make sure you suction everything out before you place the cement and the stem. And you also want to use vacuum mixing, which decreases the porosity and it increases the fatigue strength. And uh, kind of going back to what you were talking about with the stem design, for the longest time, I was thinking that my attendings were crazy that they weren't putting these porous coated stems in with cement. Because I was like, that's how it's going to bond better. It, (laughs) It makes more sense until I actually kind of thought about it and if you have a rougher stem any sort of micro motion that occurs you're basically just taking sandpaper to the cement and you're just increasing the wear so uh, for those out there that also thought like me that thought why not use a porous stem when cementing it's because there's always going to be some micro motion so if you can do micro motion with a highly polished stem then it's not going to wear through the cement. So, um, yeah, that, that's just kind of a side note that I for the longest time thought people be crazy because <laughs> the polished stems just didn't make any sense to me, but you're actually not trying to glue the, the stem to the femur. You're trying to create a, uh, kind of a distribution of forces out laterally that the stem, uh, pushes on as they bear weight essentially. So, um, going back to non-cemented or press fit stems what are some of the different types
0: yeah and and again we're going to keep this kind of really really broad in general i don't think they're necessarily going to test on like the intricacies of the different types of stems but just so everybody knows you can have metaphyseal fitting um, stems this is where you broach to prepare the metaphysis so next time you're in a case you know you'll see uh, or you depending on what stem or what system your attending uses you may see them Um, ream the canal first um, if they're going for more diaphyseal fit and then broach uh, I don't know how to try to describe a broach but it almost looks like it's in the shape of the stem itself and you're using this to prepare the metaphysis to get the, uh, the eventual implant you also have metadiaphyseal fitting stems. And this is where you may broach and ream, um, to prepare the metaphysis and the diaphysis as well as diaphyseal fitting stems where again, you may be doing a broach and ream type of thing. Um, and, and so what are some different techniques used for canal preparation for the stem? And I remember just knowing the diff, knowing this term and knowing the difference of what these are. I was like, Oh, okay. Now, it makes a little more sense what they're talking, you know, I can kind of keep up a little bit more now.
1: So uh, some of these uh, different techniques, um, basically, like you said, uh, broaching plus placing a, an oversized stem, meaning you're going to broach to a seven, but but the, um, the stem, the final component seven and the broach seven, are almost always slightly different sizes. I don't know of a company really that does a brooch of a size seven and then you place a size eight stem in. Um, but the, the the final implant size is usually about one to 1.5 millimeters bigger than the brooch. So you do get that press fit. Um, you, uh, place those hoop stresses to prevent motion and those hoop stresses keep the implant stable while the bone grows onto the implant or grows into the implant. Um, and then, uh, a line to line canal and stem are basically the perfect size and match. And some companies have a, uh, more closely related broach and final stem uh, design and others are a little bit different and you'll just have to see what it's like when you start using these implants and you decide on which one is best. Like, um, I can't remember the, the exact companies or whatever, but there are just some companies where, where you place the brooch is exactly where the final implant is but other companies where you place the brooch, the final implant is going to sit about a millimeter superior to that or proud. So you actually are going to seat the brooch a little bit further than what you otherwise would have to get the stem to fit where you want it to. So, um, but that's, that's not going to be tested. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, worry about that. And this rough stem coating Uh, on the surfaces will create friction and it's called a scratch fit. Um, Basically when, when attendings are talking about it, like, Oh, that's a good scratch fit or something that that's what they're talking about is this rough stem is scratching into the uh, femoral shaft and creating a nice friction, high friction uh, setting to prevent motion and to prevent subsidence. And so this topic kind of frustrates me, but um, what is the difference <laughs> between ingrowth and ongrowth?
0: Yeah, so ingrowth is when when bone grows into the implant. So this is going to be, um, you know, used. When these implants are have like bees or mesh or porous metals um, and in the porous coating, you typically want the size to be between 50 and 150. I think it's like microns or something like that. Um, so again, in growth, bone grows into the implant. On growth is that the bone grows onto the roughened implant surface. So these implants may be plasma sprayed or grit blasted, or, you know, it may be hydroxyapatite. Uh, may be used on the implant as well, but these don't have the pores um, like it does for the ingrowth. So, ingrowth bone grows into the implant, on growth bone grows onto the roughened implant surface. I swear I've seen a question on on this next one. Um, but what is the chemical formula for hydroxyapatite? I don't know what uh, I yeah, happens. no, you
1: like, hey, you, you definitely uh, have because there's been on a recent OITE where it said basically this was the question what is the chemical formula for hydroxyapatite and it showed calcium 10 phosphate 6 uh hydroxy component 2 i don't there, there's no way for me to tell you that. <laughs> look it up got to know. basically is there's 10 calcium 6 phosphate and 2 hydroxy so that's where you get the hydroxy part is the 2 hydroxy Appetite is basically just fancy way of saying calcium phosphate. And it's an osteoconductive uh, plasma sprayed surface coat. And the coat roughens uh, and creates a porous type of surface for the bone to grow. And uh, osteoconductive, um, uh, basically, um, it's not... Uh, giving bone to the body to grow, but it's giving a more beneficial uh, surface for the bone to grow on. So that's why it is a conductive, excuse me, a conductive type of uh, uh, bone graft, you could say, because hydroxyapatite is also used in bone graft, but it's not uh, osteogenic. It's not osteoinductive. It's osteoconductive. And uh, the reason why I hate ingrowth and ongrowth is I don't want to confuse anybody, but in my opinion, uh, bone can only grow onto an implant. Um, mm. Even if it goes in the pores, it still grows onto the metal. It doesn't. Ah, become, it doesn't become one with the metal. Like you're not going to have a metal ion and then a calcium and then another metal ion creating an in-growth type of structure. It always is going to grow onto the implant just because it goes through a pore. It still grows onto it, but that's just my <laughs> personal frustrations with in-growth and on-growth. So still know the difference. People talk about an in-growth component versus an on-growth component, but just know that it's, I don't know, it frustrates me. Um, but uh, so we talked about hydroxyapatite. We uh talked about that it's a conductive plasma sprayed surface coat um for kind of polyethylene i think it's good to at least maybe go back to it a little bit and talk about um kind of maybe we can go over like what the radiation does and free radicals and oxidation versus crosslinking if you want to or Uh, If not, we can just uh, kind of have people go back to the knee section where we talk about that stuff.
0: Uh, I mean, let's see if we can. I guess I can pull it up really quickly. Why not? You know, it's 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 a it's a refresher. Let me let me find it here. Yeah, I'll Uh, kind of briefly talk about. So for for
1: polyethylene sterilization, you're going to do gamma radiation, which is the most common form of polyethylene sterilization. And what that's going to do is it's going to result unfortunately in an oxidized polyethylene uh and results in osteolysis so the sterilization is only one part of the process of uh the polyethylene kind of development and so if you are uh going to uh do gamma radiation and oxidize the polyethylene um should you do it in a oxygen rich environment or a oxygen depleted environment?
0: Yeah. So you should do that in a um, oxygen depleted environment. If you do it with, with a bunch of oxygen, you may get, um, you know, free radical formation. And when you get uh free radical formation, you get oxidative degradation of the polyethylene, which can lead to polyethylene wear. Um, so yeah, that's why we, you know, oxidize these, not in free air. Um, and that helps increase the poly stiffness. Um, well, oh, I'm sorry, oxidizing our oxidation. Uh, when you have that with the free radical formation, uh, increases the stiffness and decreases the strength. So, uh, we do not want to, um, we do not want to sterilize these in free air. Um, so we do that in like an inert, atmosphere with ethylene oxide or gas plasma and i know one other early other things that we talked about was kind of like remelting and annealing and and in the in the role that those play with poly and that remelting is when we have the poly that's going to be changed from a crystalline to an amorphous state um and that's going to reduce the fatigue stuffness versus annealing is when the poly is going to be heated all the way to a temperature below its melting point so it's not all the way it's not all the way melted like in remelting. Um, with annealing, this this keeps the um uh, crystal crystallinity, but it leaves a little bit more free free radicals than than remelting. And um, and and then yeah, you mentioned the gamma um or electron beam irradiation um is, is used to help increase the cross-lengthening of poly uh, of polyethylene. Um Anything else you want to? Oh, we did talk about ram extrusion and compression molding, but you know, if if we want to touch base on that, really quick.
1: Yeah, just real quick. So, several fabric. So, ram extrusion and compression molding are different fabrication methods, and basically, ram bar extrusion and machining is basically like a. The polyethylene powder goes into a heated chamber and a ram pushes the powder into a heated barrel and you form this cylindrical rod that are then machined into, uh, the polyethylene shape. So it's, uh, just think of like a a bar, like a barbell, uh, in the gym. Um, but it's all polyethylene and that basically is just polyethylene powder that has been compressed into that shape. Uh, whereas, um, like direct compression molding is where you put the powder in the shape of the final component itself you heat it and then uh the uh the polyethylene powder kind of uh forms the final component that it's already placed in that mold and that's the best way to uh, kind of create a polyethylene shape especially something that is uh kind of intricate and complex like a Uh, acetabular component or a total knee component um, because what what you're trying to prevent is a a kind of excess or external machining which when you do external machining if you cut a tibial polyethylene from a large bar of polyethylene you're going to have micro splinters at the edges from the machining process that can then increase polyethylene wear whereas if you do the uh, compression molding all of the polyethylene is molded into the final shape itself and you don't have to cut around any edges. So that's why it's better, but it is more expensive and and it takes longer.
0: This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS part one exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the resident orthopedic core knowledge program. ROCK is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access ROCK content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org.
1: back to our our hip stuff um uh we have uh uh i guess briefly very very briefly we'll talk about some of the shapes of these uh femoral stems what are what are some of the shapes you'll hear about and maybe talk about in conference
0: yeah and again this is just a brief overview if you want an in-depth uh overview of these different types of stems go and check out our 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 podcast with Dr. Anna Cohn Rosenblum, but you can have a tapered stem um, where you have a proximal to distal taper that allows the implant to 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 fit, and it has a cylindrically porous coated in that section. So this can be a medial lateral a medial lateral taper, which I think you mentioned earlier that you do, or it can be in the um, A to P taper as well, or it can be both. That's called a dual taper or a single taper. Um, you can also have a cylindrical stem that's just. Um, can be typically is fully coated proximally and distally. Um, sometimes these types of stems can be associated with thigh pain and stress shielding. There are things called anatomic stems, which just fills the metaphyseal region in the coronal and sagittal planes. And you also can have a a, a Wagner type stem, which is a more of a modular, uh, which is a modular stem. Which these are stems that have more than one piece. So, for example, you may have a different um, a different stem and a different neck piece. And this may be useful in, in big cases where you're doing, um, you know, where there's deformity, where it's really dysplastic hip, or, um, you know, there's just not a, a lot of bone stock, you know, and your more difficult cases may use these modular Wagner type stem. Mm-hmm. And also there's a combination of all the other stuff that we talked about, the ingrowth versus on growth. And you can also have approximately coated versus distally coated, or it can be fully coated versus partially coated. These are all just some of the different designs uh, of these different stems. So the next time you're at a meeting and you're looking at a table and there's 18 different stems out, you'll kind of at least hopefully know a little bit of a difference of what one may be versus the other. Um, I don't think they're going to test on that, but that's just kind of just good to know. Um, and, and and well, I think they will put options for like using a modular stem in in uh, in a in a really complex case with really bad like dysplasia or something. Um, um, and so, so what are, oh, <laughs> next question here, look at that. What are some situations where a modular femoral stem may be used? I'm getting ahead of myself here.
1: Yeah, and when we talk about modular femoral stem, we're talking about a diaphyseal fit femoral stem where you're reaming the the femur, you place the distal component, and then what this proximal component does is you can essentially set the anversion where you want it to be. And so um, this is typically... Uh, used for like a hip dysplasia, a revision hip, or one with difficult anatomy where you um, basically, maybe they've had a trauma or something is throwing off their native antiversion that you can't uh, uh, recreate their native antiversion with a standard kind of ML tapered stem. Using a diaphysial fit stem allows you to put in whatever version you want uh, to, that makes the hip stable. The downside to it is wherever you have increased uh, motion at a metallic junction, you increase the risk of uh, corrosion and pseudotumor formation. So just like at the trunnion, um, in these modular components, um, where the uh, metaphyseal portion and the diaphyseal portion meet, there's another taper at that region too that is also subject to uh, metallic wear and corrosion. And it's not as common because it's typically fixed within the femoral shaft, but it is still a risk and something that you have to to be careful for when you're evaluating these patients post-op and they may say, hey, you know, I've noticed this swelling or I've noticed uh, increased pain or something like that. You have to kind of keep that corrosion in mind. And so, uh we've we talked a little bit about it but what are some of the bearing surfaces for total hips
0: yeah so um you can have the metal on poly which is which is most freaking that we talked about a little bit earlier like we talked about our titanium cups with our polyethylene liners um uh we also could have ceramic on poly where you have a little bit of lower in vitro wear rates than metal on poly, um, but it also is associated with increased costs. You can have ceramic on ceramic too, um, which is associated with the lowest wear rates. But like you mentioned a little bit earlier, this can be associated with squeaking as well as fracture of the liner. And you can also have metal on metal, which does have very low wear rates and using, it allows you to use a little bit of a larger head, which um, allows a little bit of a lower dislocation rate and bringing, bringing back some basic science into, uh, into this, uh, what, what metal has the highest Young's modulus? Uh,
1: so that is going to be uh, ceramic followed by cobalt chrome, followed by stainless steel, then titanium alloy, and then cortical bone. Um, and basically For Young's modulus, kind of what it does is it measures the stiffness or the ability to resist deformation of a material in the elastic zone as we're looking at one of those kind of stress versus uh, strain curves. And it's looking at the slope. Uh, The slope of that elastic zone is the Young's modulus. So if it has a very high slope, meaning it can take on a lot of stress, but not deform much in the elastic zone, then it's going to have a high Young's modulus, which is what ceramic is. Ceramic is a very brittle material. And so it can take on a high, a lot of, a high degree of stress, but it doesn't have uh, the ability to uh, elastically deform. Uh, the downside to that is uh, it is prone to uh, kind of brittle type fractures. So When it fractures, it's going to fracture into a bunch of different pieces and be a more catastrophic fracture rather than, uh, something like, uh, cartilage, which has a really low Young's modulus and it's very, uh, elastic or it's not very stiff. When you fracture cartilage, it's, it kind of just breaks. It's not a, it doesn't just catastrophically uh, fail and fracture into a bunch of different pieces. So, um, do metals with a closer modulus of elasticity to bone have more or less uh, stem-related thigh pain?
0: Yeah, this is going to be just less thigh pain and, and, and less stress shielding. Um, that's why, you know, t- titanium has a closer um, modulus of elasticity to bone, but the closer it is, less thigh pain. Uh, and, and so what are some femoral stem properties that could lead to a higher incidence of stress shielding?
1: Uh, a stiffer material, um, like a cobalt chrome, um, basically what stress shielding is, is it is, uh, the implant taking on the stress rather than the cortical bone. And so you're going to see a resorption of cortical bone. So a stiffer material or a stiffer metal is going to stress shield the bone more because it's going to take on much more of the, uh, weight bearing, um, distally fixed, fully coated stems are going to have an increased incidence of stress shielding because you're going to have more of the, uh, fixation through the femoral diaphysis than you are through the femoral metaphysis. And so the bone is going to say, oh, well, if the metaphysis isn't being, uh, stressed, then I don't have to put a lot of bone there. So it's going to result right. in that area. And, uh, basically that's what you're going to see is proximal osteopenia and bone loss and distal sclerosis, meaning uh, increased bone formation distally. And so uh, when you are in the uh, OR and you're putting in the acetabular component, what what's the ideal component position?
0: Yeah, so we, we talked a little bit earlier about the ideal cup position just for a refresher. You want it in the center of the hip immediately you want to ride the border of the ilioischial line and inferior border. You want to ride the teardrop, but when we're looking at the actual uh, uh, position and angle wise on the acetabulum, we want about 30 to 50 degrees of abduction or around 40 um, as well as ten to books to anywhere from 10 to 40 degrees of anniversion or kind of around 20 is the answer that uh, a lot of people will use. So on x-ray, when you're looking at an AP, you're, take a line horizontally um uh you know to the ground and then a line going across the bottom of the as a tabular component and you want that to be in around around 40 or so degrees of abduction. And then measuring anniversion can be a little bit a little bit harder, but if you look at it kind of a cross table lateral you can you can measure the amount of you can kind of get the amount of that you uh that you have. But in, in the case when you, next time you're looking and you're seeing the, you know, you're, excuse me, you're attending ream and then place the cup finally, ideally that position of where the, where that handle is and where the cup is being placed into acetabulum, that should be somewhere around 40 degrees of abduction and 20 degrees of antiversion. Now, when you're looking at the femur itself, the femur, um, can ideally be placed around anywhere from Five to 25 degrees of antiversion, but I think a safe number is to say around 15 degrees. And you can also check the antiversion of the femur on an X-ray if you take a look at the cross table lateral and you follow the line of the of the femoral shaft, and then you look at the line of the neck of the femur. Um, a lot of times you can see it can be antiverted, you know, five, 10, 15 degrees or so. But you really want a combined antiversion. So the combined antiversion is a antiversion of the acetabular component as well as a femoral component and that should be around 40 or around 35 to 45 degrees or so and um i think we i think we covered in depth like a uh, good amount of you know the materials we talked about biomechanics and implants um you know even all the way down to like you know constrained liners and 10 degree lip liners um some of some of that which may not be asked on the test but some of it is just like good to know of joints on especially when you're talking about hips and just um i think we talked about a good amount of stuff man. what what about you
1: yeah no i i think in just to kind of recap on all of that stuff uh for those of you looking for kind of high yield stuff to go back to uh joint reactive forces are a good thing to go back to um uh, anatomy for the uh, approaches, yeah. it, it's good to go back to because they will ask you about uh, you doing a Smith-Peterson anterior approach to the hip and you encounter brisk bleeding uh, deep to the, uh, I don't know, like TFL or something like that. Then it's yeah. going to ask you what, what blood vessel was injured and it's the uh, uh, lateral femoral circumflex and it's the uh, superior branch of that. So, uh, just, just so you know about that sort of stuff. And then they'll talk about maybe lateral femoral cutaneous nerve palsies, uh, as a result of the anterior approach. So yeah, joint reactive forces and approaches are probably the highest yield things. And then, uh, looking at that lumbo pelvic motion, looking at templating and how templating is going to change the position of the hip in space when you put the final components in and, uh, and yeah, let us let us know if there's anything uh, you want covered or you think that uh, we uh, didn't cover enough, and and we'll do our best to kind of follow up on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then we'll finish up here in our next couple of episodes. I think wear will be one of the high yield things as well as like fractures, a periprosthetic hip fracture. I think that'll be a high yield like OIT thing that I, I think almost every year there's a question on that. Like, what should you do? Is, is implant stable or not? Or um, oh, so. yeah we'll get into that
1: bone stock all of that stuff
0: yep well it'll be fun so those of you that are listening uh we hope you enjoyed the episode and hope you're you're learning some stuff and uh if you have any questions concerns feel free to email us nailedortho at at gmail.com and uh and, and stay tuned we'll see you all next week